everyone. This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Sabrina. And I'm Sophie, and today we're sitting down with Professor Judson Brewer. Judd Brewer, MD, PhD, is an associate professor and director of research and innovation at the Mindfulness Center at Brown University's Schools of Medicine and Public Health. He also serves as a research affiliate at MIT. A psychiatrist and internationally known expert in mindfulness training for addictions, Dr. Brewer has developed clinically proven app-based mindfulness training for things like helping people quit smoking, stop overeating, and reduce anxiety. He is the author of The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked and How We Can Break Bad Habits. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Brewer. Thanks for having me. So Dr. Brewer, one of the few things we like to ask all of our interviewees is for them to share a moment in their lives, an inflection point almost, um, that really set off the trajectory for um, where they are now. Do you think you could share a story with us? I'd be happy to. Uh, This inflection point actually comes, uh, I didn't know how much of an inflection point it was until later, uh, but I'll I'll set the stage. I was a a senior in college, uh, headed to uh, medical school, and um, I had gone through, uh, just right before starting medical school, uh, I was, I'd gone through a, a tough relationship breakup uh, with my, my girlfriend. And right when I, you know, it was probably a few weeks before starting medical school, I would notice that I was having trouble sleeping, probably for the first time in my life. I was a pretty good sleeper. And uh, there was all this, you know, this stress. I would basically lost my best friend. And I started meditating my first day of medical school as, uh, you know, I saw this as kind of a new beginning. I was going into a new, uh, new stage of my life. And for some reason, you know, I remember picking up this book by John Kabat-Zinn called Full Catastrophe Living and listening to these cassette tapes. I don't know if you all know what cassette tapes are, but uh, (laughs) I started listening to these cassette tapes at the beginning of medical school to see what meditation was all about. And looking back on that now, you know, over 20 years ago, I realized, you know, back then I found, oh, you know, this is really helpful for helping me alleviate stress. But that inflection point led to me shifting my entire career. So uh, when I finished my MD-PhD program, I shifted from studying molecular biology to studying mindfulness. I shifted my, I didn't really know what specialty I wanted to go into as a, as a physician uh, until the end of medical school. And it, it, it affected what profession I did. So it, it really inspired me to become a psychiatrist when that was the last thing that I thought I was going to do. And then it launched this entire career of doing neuroscience and clinical trials and even developing app-based mindfulness training programs to help people. So that little piece of stress, you know, at at the end of college really uh, led to this blossoming of, you know, of a personal journey and and a professional journey that I had no idea that I was about to embark on. So following up on that, Professor, I was wondering if you could share a little bit about um, if there was anything else that or what factors made you decide to turn this personal journey into um, 
giving back to society almost because you use this personal experience as a catalyst to launch you into the field of psychiatry and like understanding mindfulness and the way our brain works. But not, I feel like there's an element of that um, giving back to the community when you turned that into the, the mindfulness app that you've been working, the training programs that you've developed. And so mm-hmm. what motivated you to turn that experience into um, this like, almost act of public service? <laughs> That's a really good question. I knew that when I started medical school that I wanted to do research that was going to be of service to humanity. I remember I studied college. In college, my major was chemistry. And I didn't want to just only study you know, these tiny molecules without seeing something tied back to helping people. So I think you know, that's something that I learned in, in high school. I went to a Jesuit high school uh, and so our, our motto, you know, was, was basically people for others. Uh, and even in, in college, um, I went to Princeton and I think the motto was like in, in the nation service. I think it's now in the world service. Uh, so there was something there in all of my schooling, but I think it was really seeing the direct effect of what it feels like to be of service, to help others that just was really, it feels good, you know? It feels good to help people. And ironically, that goes back to the, what my lab studies now is, you know, around habits and, you know, and how habits get formed based on how rewarding they are. And so I think that those are probably the seeds for me kind of learning this habit that it just feels good to be of service to others. And so I can't imagine anything more fulfilling now uh, of doing anything else in my career that's more fulfilling than what I'm doing, which is, you know, discovering how to help people change their own behaviors. And whether it's in my clinic, helping my patients in my clinic or doing our research studies or making these apps, you know, just seeing what it's like for people to be able to, uh, you know, break habits that they've had for decades or, you know, uh, get, you know, reduce anxiety that they've had forever. It's just really gratifying. And so I think there's a positive feed forward aspect of that in itself. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, In a similar vein, I wanted to ask, so traditionally the field of psychiatry is driven by therapy and usually by drugs. And so I'm actually really curious as to um, kind of how, um, the entry of meditation has changed this landscape of, uh, you know, strictly therapy and drugs. And uh, how do you think uh, it's changed the field and what, where do you see that going forward? Mm-hmm. One thing I noticed in residency, so when I was starting to work more and more with people uh, you know, in my psychiatry clinics, and in particular people with addictions, I noticed this parallel they were using language that was very similar to language that I had been learning from the ancient Buddhist psychology, you know, that was, that was about, you know, craving and clinging and suffering and all of this stuff. And I remember thinking, this can't be a coincidence, you know, this cannot be a coincidence. And so what I was starting to see, and I was also seeing that, you know, a lot of the medications that I was learning about and learning to prescribe uh, for example, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, things like Prozac and Zoloft and, and all these things, you know, they're not particularly effective for things like anxiety, yet they are first-line treatments. 
And if you look at addictions, there really aren't, I mean, with rare exceptions. So there are some medications for smoking, like varenicline, uh, you know, tends to work pretty well. I, um, I have a buprenorphine clinic where I work with people with opioid dependence or opioid use disorder. And the, the buprenorphine is also a partial agonist and seems to you know, work pretty well for a lot of my patients. But with those exceptions, there are very few treatments for addiction in general. Uh, from a medication standpoint. And so, you know, for me with my patients who were just struggling with their addictions, you know, I was looking at how can I help these folks? And here it is, you know, the, the ancient Buddhist psychologists were talking about this stuff. So that got me really inspired to see how much this could actually, you know, how much mindfulness and meditation could help people overcome addictions and overcome things as, um, you know, like anxiety and things like that. So it was really born a lot out of a need, whereas, you know, we need good treatments for, for addictions, for anxiety, for depression, for all these things. And it seemed that this was the most direct path into the psychological mechanisms that were actually perpetuating these things. So as a scientist, I'm always looking for, you know, what's the mechanism? Can we target that mechanistic pathway? Because that's gonna be effective. You know, just like any cancer treatment, you want to find the mutations in the in in the tyrosine kinase pathways or whatever. Same thing is true in, with psychological pathways. And in fact, we actually know a lot about these psychological pathways. And it turns out, and this is some of the work that my lab's done, other labs have done this as well, showing that mindfulness directly targets those mechanistic pathways. That's pretty amazing. And so I think that, you know, targeted treatment is something that medicine in general has been looking for. And I think just, you know, seeing these parallels and lining up these pathways and seeing how mindfulness targets those pathways is going to be really helpful uh, going forward. And I think we're going to see a blossoming of, you know, mindfulness helping for particular uh, things where those pathways are affected. It's not going to be, it's not going to be, you know, this panacea but for things where, for example, reward-based learning is involved, which include anxiety, depression, you know, addictions, just to name a few, uh, I think mindfulness is going gonna, is gonna to be really helpful there because it seems to target those pathways. So circling back a little bit uh, to the problem at hand, namely addiction, um, I was wondering how much are we as humans addicted to feeling addicted? In the sense that I'm thinking, um, you know, people like, to an extent, people like routine. People like a sense of familiarity. And in a way, I would, I, I would argue that those are mild, some mild forms of addiction that like the same, getting that same sort of like feeling of familiarity or like satisfaction from certain things. Um, probably these things are more neutral rather than negative in, in nature. But I also learned recently that apparently spiciness in foods are registered as pain, not as a taste uh, by our human body. Um, and without getting too technical for the audi audience, uh, I, it was, it's because of the way that the molecules bind to uh, different receptors in your taste buds that aren't taste receptors. Um, and so I found that so fascinating because all my friends who like spicy food tell me, oh, but it's so good. I, I just love spicy food, even though they're like sweating and like, tearing up and like searching for bottles of milk right after they're done with like their instant noodles. 
Um, and so, yeah, what, how can we understand like this, I feel uh, this like paradox where we want to get over our addictions and yet humans by nature seem to be wired to be addicted to things. Yeah, isn't that an interesting paradox? <laughs> so one way to think about this is that habits in general are helpful. So imagine waking up every morning and having to relearn everything from walking to putting on our clothes to cooking to talking, right? We'd be exhausted by breakfast. So it's not to say that habits are bad. It, habits are extremely helpful, you know, yet you can think of that spectrum where, you know, I like the simple definition of addiction being continued use despite adverse consequences. So when some, some habit slips into that continued use despite adverse consequences, then it moves into this realm of addiction. So here we can see you know, where habits can be helpful and it could be the exact same behavior, but just done too much or done a particular way can be adverse consequences. I've had a number of patients who have substituted exercise for a drug, you know, for cocaine or heroin or whatever. And they can actually still be addicted to that pathway where they're over-exercising, where they're injuring themselves, where they're getting all, they're spending too much time thinking about exercise and recovering from it. All the, you know, all these criteria that you would say, well, that's addiction. They're, they're meeting those criteria. It just happens to be through something that's a little more socially acceptable. So here, I think, you know, these pathways, it's not the pathways themselves that are the problem. It's the piece where, you know, that, that addiction lingers. And I think you're saying, I love how you say, you know, can we be addicted to being addicted? <laughs> There's a quality of excitement that is actually a, a process that helps us learn things. And we have learned probably through some societal conditioning that that to equate that with with happiness, right? So think about excitement, the, the underlying qualities of excitement. There's this there's this rush of energy. There's this anticipation. Well, the anticipation piece is set up to help us to motivate us to go do behavior, uh, do whatever the behavior is. It's, it was actually originally set up to help us go go get food when we're hungry. So that pathway can get co-opted depending on what's happening. And so for example, in, in modern day, where we can, we, we can focus on that and say, oh yeah, that's a good thing without really paying attention to what it feels like. You know? So for example, uh, excitement, we can't have constant excitement all the time because we get exhausted from it. <laughs> you know? so, so that addicted element um, comes in there. It's like, well, I can, be, I can be addicted to being excited, for example. And I remember reading in a book, there was this Burmese monk named Sada Upandita who wrote, you know, people mistake excitement of the mind for happiness. And they don't realize the greater joy that comes from peace and contentment or calm or something like that. So in fact, when we think that excitement is the best thing out there, we might equate that with, oh yeah, I'm, I'm happy when I'm excited. Yet when we start to see there are other things and excitement by itself isn't a problem, it's just, you know, continued use despite adverse consequences. You know, if we keep 
if we keep doing things to get us excited, we see where that starts to lead to problems. And then we also don't see, don't necessarily see that there's actually something that is a, as a greater joy uh, than the excitement itself. And then, then when we see those things, it becomes, um, it, the excitement becomes less exciting, <laughs> if that makes sense. I think one of the things that you mentioned in your talk at the Athenaeum is uh, the biggest misconception of mindfulness is that it's um, about, like, it's about, you know, not allowing your mind to think a certain way, but more about like kind of letting the thoughts flow. So I'm really curious as to what exactly the line is between mindfulness and just focus. Yeah, it's, it's an important question. So you can think of, we can be focused on something, right? And so well, let, let me back up. I think of mindfulness as having two elements, awareness, but a certain attitudinal quality. And so the quality that comes with that awareness is curiosity, or some describe it as non-judgment, where we are, we're not sucked in, like, oh, this is really good, I wanna hold on to this, or we're not pushing things away, like, oh, this is really bad, I want this to go away. So we could be focused on something where we really want it to continue. We could be focused on something where we really are so focused on it because we want it to go away. So this is, you know, somebody is annoying me. I'm going to do whatever I can to make them go away. I'm focused, <laughs> but I have an agenda that is that has a driven quality to it. So with both, you know, holding on to things and pushing things away, there's a driven quality that's not, you know, that doesn't have a, a let's say a balance or equanimity with it. With mindfulness, when we're truly just being aware and okay with whatever's happening, that's really what mindfulness is about. So you can think of it as how are we relating to what's happening? So we can be focused and balanced or equanimous. I would say that's mindfulness. We could be focused and totally struggling every moment, you know, trying to force ourselves to focus, for example, that's not mindfulness. Does that help? Yes, absolutely, it does. So Professor, one of the things that I absolutely adored from your ATH talk was the incorporation of the concept of curiosity as an answer almost, or a, um, like a viable go-to alternative um, for a lot of the bad habits we're trying to break. Um, uh, as, but as much as I love this answer, I also, I also couldn't help but wonder um, how you could convince people that this is quote unquote the answer to overcoming their, their negative addictions without bringing out their inner skeptic almost because it sounds great in theory, but how exactly are you supposed to cultivate a sense of curiosity when um, the innate skeptic in humans, and I say innate because I do think there's a level of skepticism that people tend to view optimism or things of that nature mm -hmm. when presented to them. So well, here I would say, bring on the skepticism. I think skepticism is healthy because it gets people to not just blindly go along with things. And at the same time, how do we, so I would suggest that we can't convince people to be curious, but what we can do is help them remember what it's like when they are curious, because everybody's curious at some point, right? 
And so let me ask you, if you had to pick which one is feels better, would you say a, being in the throes of a strong craving or being curious about that? Well, you could say about that craving or just being curious in general, which one feels better? To, to me? Yeah. Well, I'm an, I'm a naturally curious person, I would, I would hope. Um, so that I might be giving you a biased answer here, but I guess well, I'm thinking in terms of, you know, people who um, I'm thinking like Newton's first law of motion, things in motion, stay in motion, things not in motion, stay not in motion. And so how do you get them to make that first step almost? It's like the hard part, right? It is, it is. So often people's curiosity has not been awakened in a long time. So what I do is with, whether it's patients in my clinic or folks in our programs, I'll, I'll see if there is some way to awaken that in them, even in that moment. So for example, I might ask, you know, well, when's the last time you were curious? And, and they say, oh, I can't remember. I'm just not curious. Well, then I might, I might say, well, what's it feel like not to be curious? And what that does is it can, it can awaken somebody's curiosity. Huh, what's it feel like not to be curious? I don't know, let me explore that. And even in that moment or that, you know, that short exercise, we can have them explore what it feels like not to be curious and awaken their curiosity in the process and then shine that spotlight of awareness on what that felt like in that moment. One thing that I love to do is I, I'll have people, you know, for example, with anxiety, it's tough to be curious about anxiety. So I have people feel into where they feel anxiety most in their body. And then I ask them, is it more on the right side or the left side? Right? Which brings up that this, this, hmm, I don't know, is it on the right side or the left side? And that in itself, in that moment, I can have them say, okay, what was it like just to feel the anxiety? And what was it like just to get curious whether it was on the right side or the left side? And generally people can see, well, there's a, you know, when there's that awakening of that curiosity in that moment, it feels a little better or easier to manage just in that moment. So that's all we need in terms of getting our foot in the door of curiosity. And that can give them exercises to play with more and more because they've seen for themselves what curiosity feels like, even in the throes of anxiety. That's a really awesome answer. And I think I might even start using that myself. But um, I wanted to ask, so in your ath talk, you spoke about, you know, we theoretically know so much about our minds and about addiction and also not, but on the aspect of, you know, us knowing so much about our minds and our addictions, you mentioned that companies like to create products that completely target these like niches of addiction, right? Like in your ath talk, you showed the 2013 New York Times article with the Dorito, you know, like um, I believe it was salt plus fat squared plus good mouthfeel equals something you want to buy, right? And so I'm curious, um, what do you think uh, about the ethics of exploiting people based on our knowledge of addiction in order to drive sales, in order to drive capitalism? What do you think of that? <laughs> in general, <laughs> I think it's eventually going to drive us all off a cliff where we're going we're gonna to use up all of the natural resources on our planet we're going to have a bunch of people that are not happier. You know, they're actually less happy because they're all addicted. 
and we're and we're all going to be fighting amongst ourselves because nobody's happy. So in general, in this, I think these apps are just an example of this, where you know you can think of this even more broadly. If we don't step back and ask, why are we doing this? You know, is is in fact you know making more profit for our companies better than the health of the planet and all the people on the planet you know if we don't ask ask those tough questions then this is this is just going to this rampant capitalism is just going to drive us off a cliff not not that i'm anti-capitalist what i'm saying is what i am anti is habits right and i think there's a habit of people thinking oh if i just you know make more money or get more people to use my app or whatever more then I will be happy. We all need to examine that to see if it is actually true for ourselves. <laughs> That's what I'm anti to. I'm anti habit. <laughs> that makes sense. And so um, just to wrap up a little bit, um, I'm curious if you have any sort of uh, advice or mindfulness techniques for students right now experiencing anxiety, burnout, and all of these negative emotions and habits due to, you know, the current situation. I'm curious if you have anything um, you'd like to shout out to our students that may help. One thing that I really like because it really can help reboot our, the working memory parts of our brain is this thing called five finger breathing. And I put out a short video on YouTube uh, for that. But basically if uh, we, we just, I have people take their index finger of one hand and put it at the base of their pinky on the outside of their pinky on their other hand. And as they breathe in, they trace up the outside of their pinky and feel it and look at it, pause at the top. And then as they breathe out, they trace down the inside. And basically, you know, they can take five breaths as they trace out their entire hand. They can take 10 breaths as they trace back. What that does is it, it forces so many senses to be at play at once. So feeling two hands, right? Index finger, pinky, feeling the breath and also looking at the hands. That kind of takes up all the working memory space in our brain. And at the same time, paying attention to our breath like that can help calm down our physiology. So it kind of reboots that working memory which may have been spinning out in worry or anxiety or whatever and if those thoughts come back in, they come back in at uh, where there's a mismatch be with the uh, the intensity of the of the emotional field because we're we're feeling calm, and those thoughts come in and they don't they don't uh, mesh up because they're at there there's a mismatch. So I love that five finger breathing. Breathing folks can you know go look on the on on my YouTube channel if they want to explore it more. But that's basically all it is 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 tracing out your fingers as you're breathing it's a really good way to kind of ground and kind of reboot so I, that's that's one thing i would suggest i'm really glad you brought that up professor because that was one of the questions i had hoped to ask you but since we're running out of time um i, I was kind of worried you were, we wouldn't get to that but you answered it and tied it all in together which is great but and unfortunately that is all the time we have for today so thank you dr brewer for joining us and to all our listeners remember to stay hungry Thanks for having me.